Today I want to talk to you about the insidious nature of the original sin. And being human, it uh, comes natural to us that we would think that the original sin was um, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God had said they should not eat in the Garden of Eden. But there actually was an original sin that was committed before the first sin that humanity committed. And that original sin was committed by a guy called Lucifer. Lucifer uh, is another word for morning star. And uh, although... His sin against God is, is not recorded in the creation narrative of Genesis. It is alluded to in the ancient prophecies. And I want to read two of those prophecies to you. Parts of Ezekiel 28 and parts of Isaiah 14. Ezekiel records these words of God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis, luzili, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your ways, by, by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes in the ground, and in the sight of all who are watching, all the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. And then Isaiah writes, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stairs of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphron. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So from these prophecies, clearly we can see that Lucifer was originally created in perfection. He was without sin. He was beautiful. He was given responsibility as a guardian angel. 
He was exemplary. But as we read in the uh, website from Answers in Genesis, it says, it's obvious from the text that Satan's sin was pride. He was so beautiful, so wise, so powerful as an angel that he began to covet God's position and authority. He chafed at having to serve God and grew angry and rebellious. He didn't want to serve. He wanted to be served as a creature. He wanted to be worshipped. This morning I want us to consider the insidious nature of pride, the original sin, of which Lucifer was guilty. When you look at the word insidious, it's not a word that you throw around a whole lot. I love it. It's a great word because it is, um, it's, 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 it's suggestion is so deceptive, I guess. Uh, to be insidious is proceeding in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. To be insidious is to be stealthily treacherous, deceitful, seemingly inconspicuous and harmless, but ultimately bringing about bad. Pride is insidious. Because it takes something that is positive and, and good and, and, and slowly and methodically, intentionally and deceptively, it corrupts. Take Lucifer, for example. The morning star in all his glory became Satan, the personification of evil. The name Satan means enemy or adversary. You know, we often think of politicians with this concept in mind that they're so often subject to, to the corruption that power brings. Power can corrupt. We all, you hear that a lot. Um, not from the start. Many good-intentioned people have allowed power to corrupt them. And they were good-intentioned at first. But the power, the authority, the influence, they can't handle. And it sort of insidiously, that pride can corrupt. God created Lucifer with beauty and excellence, with authority. But it was pride that turned him into pure evil. And I think that he deceived himself into thinking that all that he was, even though they were clearly gifts of God, they were God's doing, somehow he deceived himself into believing that he was a function of his own creation and should be honored as such. And so as we read this uh, scripture from Acts, as we continue in the story of the, the expansion of the church of God in, in, uh, in the early days, in the early church, Acts 14, 8 to 20, I want to keep, I would like you to keep that top of mind, that idea of the insidious nature of pride. So here we are, Barnabas and Paul are still 
going about teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts 14, 8, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. You don't have to ask me twice. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. In the past, he's speaking of God, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the seasons. He's, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered him up, he got up and went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Paul and Barnabas had a powerful, visceral, internal reaction to the people's desire to deify them. They wanted to, 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 to make them like God, Zeus and Hermes. They said, they, they've come down amongst us. They've incarnated, basically, is what they were saying. They did not want to touch that idea with a 10-foot pole. And they used a common means of showing grief and remorse, repentance, and most importantly, I think, humility. And they tore their clothes. That's what they would do. They would tear their clothes. And this was known as a means of showing Remorse, repentance, and humility. And they emphatically rebuffed the attempt to treat them as though they were gods. You see, they knew what Lucifer lost track of. They knew that they were not objects of praise, but rather totally reliant on the grace of God. They understood who they were in the context of their God. They could have, like Satan, deceived themselves into thinking that the power of their healing and their speech had something to do with them. But they absolutely appreciated the significance of who they were that they were not God, and that all they were was 
a function of who God was to them. Crazy story, right? Haven't been mistaken for God lately? Haven't had people throwing at them, themselves at you saying, wow, let me worship you. So the question is, why are we talking about this this morning, Tim? Well, I think we need to keep in mind the insidious nature of the original sin, pride. And this lesson comes as a warning as an encouragement that, no, you're likely not going to go around expecting people to worship you. And people aren't going to naturally just worship you. But pride is so insidious, so deceitful, so stealthy, that we need to be very careful that we don't allow it to take a foothold in us. Because as we do, we are no different than Lucifer, who put himself on the throne that only God possesses. Sister Talk is a podcast thingy deal. And there's two women, and they wrote this um, about the insidious nature of pride. It's not only found in boasting. I mean, that's the obvious thing. We think, oh, he's proud. He's somebody's all about himself. He's, you know, we think the guy's like, no, I don't say it. So, pride isn't just about the obvious things like boasting. But anywhere, eyes focus more on self than on him. Self-pity. Self-loathing. <laughs> Self-centeredness. The reality is, I need nothing and can do nothing because in him, by his grace, I have it all. Pride looks to self and its own involvement in salvation. But true humility looks only to him and the cross, thinks nothing of self. You might ask, well, what does self-pity have to do with pride? Well, let's think about it. Sometimes you have to be um, rather forensic when you think about these things and sort of dissect it and pull it apart. But self-pity is pride. You see, when we say, poor me, you basically are playing the victim. You're basically negating the concept that in Christ you have all that you could ever need and in truth should ever, ever want. In fact, it is sitting in judgment on God when you think of it that way, isn't it? It is saying, God, you are wanting because you are incapable of addressing my true needs. You see how insidious pride can be? Poor me. We don't think of that as pride. It's pride. In fact, it is sitting in judgment on God in finding him 
incapable. And then looking to oneself to fill the needs that we say, God, you're not doing a very good job. I like what uh, Dr. Robert Rayburn says. He's a pastor in the States. He says, the insidious nature of pride is such that men and women rarely appreciate how proud they are. And the index of pride's power over the heart is that even the purest motions of the Christian soul are deeply affected by it. Indeed, it is possible to be proud of one's confessions of sin and unworthiness, or secretly to congratulate oneself on one's brokenness. As anyone knows who has struggled against it, one of pride's most sinister effect is in its dulling our sense of appreciation for the kindness and mercy of God. God, you're not doing a very good job. Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And so we look to ourselves to fulfill the needs that only he can. Do you believe with all your heart that you have everything that you need in Christ? That's what it takes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So no, we're, we're, we don't have any delusions of the grandest scale. No one here likens themselves to God, but who here is not guilty of allowing pride of football? I'll tell you when I'm most vulnerable. I'm most vulnerable when things are at their best. I've enjoyed intimacy with God. My outlook on life is good, and, and I begin to get lazy. And, and instead of investing in my relationship with God, which is the source of how good I feel and how right things are in my life, I begin to invest in myself, seemingly forgetting that the original source of my peace and my joy was Christ, and not my own efforts. That's how insidious pride is. That's how it works in our lives. The worst sin uh, of pride, uh, Robert Rayburn continues, the worst sin of pride consists in its breathtaking dishonesty, constructing a view of oneself in defiance of the facts. <laughs> pride, as Aquinas put it, is an offense against right reason. Or as Mother Teresa once said, I'm always very glad that my slanderer should tell a trifling lie about me rather than the whole terrible truth. <laughs> it's the testimony of the Christian ages that the holiest men and women are invariably the most keenly aware of the humiliation that they would suffer if others ever discovered the eternity or the enormity of their moral failure. You know, it was pride that led the prodigal's son. It was pride that led the prodigal son away from his father. It was a rebellion. Somehow he thought that his father's wealth he had earned. And it was his wealth. And so he asked for it. And then he went away and he squandered it. And then it was humility that brought him back to the father saying, I'm a disaster. Just let me be one of your servants. 
I, I don't deserve any rights or privileges anymore. I just want to be under your roof. It was pride that led the prodigal son to rebellion, but it was humility that brought him back to join the rank of his father's servants. You keep... You see, we can't speak of the insidious nature of pride without speaking of something else. And that is the essential nature of humility. I want to say three things real quickly in closing about humility. First, humility qualifies us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We are saved by grace it's all his doing. It has nothing to do with how good we are or how disciplined we are or if we've earned it or not. We have not earned it. We are saved by grace. It is a total <coughs> gift of God. We humbly have to accept our sinfulness and humbly accept his gift of righteousness. Secondly, humility enables us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. These are great words to have in the back of your head. For in him we live and move and have our being. He is our all in all. Our very lifeblood, our life, what we do, what we say, who we are needs to be subject to him and to understand that he is the source of it. And so we are nothing without him. So humility enables us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing is humility directs us as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, it's humility that enables us to be led by God, by his Holy Spirit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. So humility qualifies, enables, and directs a vibrant walk in Christ. Not false humility, because that's pride. True humility. It's the path to experiencing life as Christ has planned it for us. So to conclude, we have to be very wary of pride because it is insidious in nature and it will start as a seed and it will grow. And we need to literally, I should say not literally, <laughs> unless of course it helps, but figuratively we need to tear our clothes <laughs> if we ever give it a foothold in our lives. We need to be repulsed. We need to get rid of it. Don't touch it with a 10-foot pole because it has such corrupting effect in our lives. It is only when we acknowledge that without him we are dead. It's only when we accept that that we can really enjoy all that Christ has for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. 
And I know that pride has been our problem from the very beginning. Your created ones have always lost track of the fact that you are the source of all that is good in them. We've always had a tendency and lean towards thinking that we have something to do with our goodness. Help us, Lord, to stay at your feet. Help us to resist Satan as he seeks to grow pride in us. Help us, Lord Jesus, just to depend fully, completely, wholly on you. Let us find our complete and utter sufficiency in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.